So a lot of my research has kind of focused a lot on the near-death experience um, uh-huh. because that seems to be a very strong, um, a very strong area of, of consciousness and the possibility of survival post-mortem. Yes. Which is which is the reason I started this research, and it's just led me in this area. And I, was, I spoke with Dr. Jan Holden, who recommended this book to me. Oh, um, wonderful! Yeah. And she she so she referenced this to me, and I think it's a it's a brilliant book because it is. I mean, when when you look at the title, you initially think it's going to be another near death experience account, whereas in fact it's it's, it's a kind of a meta analysis of studies and accounts that have been that have been given. And not in the statistical sense so much, but uh, yeah, we select uh, certain uh, types of cases and we ignore uh, the rest of the experience. Hmm. So you might say that in that sense it is a meta-analysis, but not in the usual statistical sense, no. of course. So it's more a collection of, um, of accounts that meet a certain criteria. That's right. Mm-hmm. And in the English version, there's, I believe there's over 100 of these cases which are systematically, yeah. which are systematically um, classified into certain mm-hmm. criteria. So what um, criteria were, were met? Would, would these need to meet in order for you to have written them down? Well, the, the main criterion is, of course, that there is at least one third-party person, so one person who is not the near-death experience himself or herself, who uh, can um, confirm the veridical aspects or the paranormal aspects um, of the account. So the near-death experiencer claims that something paranormal or extraordinary happened it can't be explained normally, and now there are many, many uh, accounts like that, maybe in the thousands or more, but only in a certain amount of cases, there's someone else who can testify that what the NDE or the near-death experiencer claims to have happened, really happened, in the sense that it was something paranormal going on that can't be explained through uh, sensory perception or other normal means. And these um, so third parties... Criterion. So these third mm-hmm. parties include um, friends, relatives and professional people? Doctors, of course. physicians? Yeah, almost anyone who isn't uh, yeah, uh, involved as an in the ear, him or herself, would, uh, would do the job. Hmm. Almost anyone. So are you still active in, in near-death experience research? Is that your main kind of area of, of interest or does it branch out to other? Um, yeah, I actually I have a background of um, a wider interest in psychical research and parapsychology. And I used to be very active as a reincarnation researcher. I still am, actually. But that, that is how things started off. And it was only later on that I became very actively involved in the field of near-death studies. So my first book in Dutch was a book on reincarnation research. 
actually. Mm-hmm. What was that book called? Um, it was uh, called in Dutch, Parapsychologisch Onderzoek naar Reincarnatie en Leven na de Dood, which means Parapsychological Research into Reincarnation and Survival after Death. Mm-hmm. So what uh, it also uh, contained uh, a chapter in which certain experiences were um, compared uh, with uh, near death experiences. So it was already in the book, the, the, the subject was already part of that book, but only in a minor way. The main focus being the reincarnation phenomena. Exactly. So what got you interested in that kind of, of area to begin with, reincarnation? Um, well, when I was about uh, 19 years old, um, I had lost my Roman Catholic uh, faith. I uh, was uh, raised as a Roman Catholic by parents who both were very uh, religious and had been quite religious myself until I got into contact with um, Dutch and also international students at the local university who mostly were atheists. And this really made it very urgent for me to look at my own uh, worldview and my religious uh, convictions. And one of those was, of course, that there's a life after death, which was always had been my main uh, consolation when confronted with the dark sides of life, so to speak. So I really wanted this to be true, and I started studying uh, books on parapsychological uh, subjects, also about ESP, etc. And of course, I focused on the evidence for survival after death. And that's how I encountered uh, the work of uh, Dr. Ian Stevenson of the University of Virginia. And I read a Dutch translation of his uh, yeah, very um, uh, important work. Twenty cases suggestive of reincarnation, and that's how I got convinced of the reality of uh, reincarnation. Because I was impressed by the quality of his methodology and his reasoning, and also, of course, by the evidence that he found. Hmm. So. You, of course, with your credentials, I you would class yourself as a someone who follows the scientific scientific method and values it. So, yes, what what did you find was um, noticeably strong about the evidence for both reincarnation and the reality of the near death experience? Because a lot of people will say that due to the nature of the anecdotal evidence um, yeah. and some methodological issues and timing issues, whether these, for example, with the near death experience, whether these occur. Um, in cardiac arrest patients when the brain is waking up or or turning off as opposed to being dead. Um, yes. so there's a lot of arguments like that that can refute this evidence. So what was it about the evidence that to you made it seem so strong? Well, uh, I, yeah, it's very important to uh, stress that I've never been a materialist. So after I lost my religious uh, beliefs, 
I've never felt attracted by uh, the materialist uh, mainstream uh, scientific uh, view of the world, or philosophical view of the world, I should say, but it is very important within mainstream science, I meant. Um, not because it didn't appeal to me, but just because I th thought it was nonsensical due to the nature of uh, consciousness. I've never understood why anyone could believe that consciousness is a physical phenomenon. I've never understood that. And maybe it's harder for introverts like myself to understand that than for extroverted uh, people who tend to uh, approach life or reality from the outside or something. When you're an introvert, you're, yeah, primarily uh, confronted by your own uh, consciousness as the, the point of departure. So for me, uh, the views of Descartes, uh, the, the Cartesian dualist, dualistic uh, views, always seemed much more uh, plausible than uh, physicalism or materialism. So in that sense, uh, I've never really taken seriously the uh, the tenet of uh, Carl Sagan, namely that uh, extraordinary uh, phenomena require extraordinary evidence or something like that. Uh, at least that's <laughs> what he meant. Mm. And uh, yeah, I've never... Uh, subscribed to that uh, view in the sense that for me um, it's only a matter of evidence whether something exists or not but I don't have the, the limitations of the materialistic framework that limit me uh, in the sense that I um, would reject something out of hand because it doesn't fit or doesn't match materialistic uh, yeah, preconditions. Mm. Just a moment, I'm being uh, <laughs> given a call, just a moment. No problem. So, yeah, returning to my main point, uh, for skeptics who usually have a materialistic or physicalist worldview, it is almost self-evident that things like uh, the paranormal or evidence for survival after death um, needs to be much stronger than evidence for everyday phenomena. But for me, that's uh, there's no such uh, requirement. So as soon as I can uh, accept something as evidence, uh, I will. I won't be... Um, limited by, yeah, by materialism. Mm. I won't have any inhibitions in that sense. I think that's the right way to go, follow the evidence wherever it leads, mm -hmm. regardless of any presuppositions that are made. And I recently was in a conversation with Dr. Harold Vallock mm -hmm. and um, David Lorimer, who are pushing a, a very important report called the Galileo Commission Report, which looks at these 
I've heard which about that, yeah. Which, yeah, which looks at these um, materialistic presuppositions and um, puts down a framework that could work beyond that to um, account for some of these phenomena, which Correct. is exactly along the same lines as, as what you're saying, which is follow the evidence wherever it goes. Yes. I think the it. only question is what one's view on what constitutes reliable evidence is. For, for many, the nature of um, reincarnation, near-death experience, out-of-body experience, come across as anecdotal and not empirically studied, like from um, Dr. Sampania and Dr. Penny Sartori's studies, where they put um, targets out of the range of the, of the physical body uh-huh. for them to view out of body, and none of them have been able to. I mean, regardless, the, the, so we know the sample sizes are incredibly small, um, but that's the sort of evidence that's lacking, is that empirical uh-huh. observation, and all we can rely on is testimonies, um, which is why I like your book, The Self Does Not Die, because it it gives across these not only anecdotes, but anecdotes that have, have had included visual, visual um, verifiable perception, which have been verified by third parties after the fact. So the question is, how how can we be sure that those accounts that are written in this book are accurate? Well, we can't be 100% sure, of course, but then again, we, we can't be 100% sure that uh, experimental research isn't fraudulent either. Uh, even if an experiment has been repeated thousands of times and the same results have been found time and again, that doesn't mean that there can't be a conspiracy of experimenters, purely theoretically, hypothetically, I mean, uh, that have, uh, yeah, just uh, conspired uh, to give us an illusion about uh, the results. Uh, uh, Sorry, just a second phone call. (laughs) Just a moment. I meant um, fraud can't be excluded 100%, and nor can um, distortions in one's memory, etc. We can only uh, work with uh, plausibility, with probability about such things. And, uh, yeah, the more cases one collects, the less probable it becomes that uh, it's just, uh, yeah, someone's fantasy or, uh, yeah, memory errors, Mm. what is going on. Yeah, I mean, I I need to look through Dr. Ian Stevenson and Dr. Jim Tucker's work a bit more thoroughly uh-huh. on reincarnation because I've been so focused mainly on the on the near-death experiences and trying to ignore the online sceptic community okay. um, who like to shut you down at any opportunity they get. Um, yes, I know, yeah. So I need to look more into, into Ian Stevenson and Jim Tucker's work because I think that's a very interesting field. Um, it is, yeah. Some, some very well-known um, cases such as the little boy who remembered being a fighter pilot, which uh-huh. which could be corroborated James um, Leninger, yeah. That's the one, yeah. Um, things like that, fascinating, I think, because, as, as I say, I, I kind of got into this re- into this field for a, 
very similar reason to you, not not from a religious point of view, but when I was 12, I began suffering from anxiety and depression. And I was always very, I was brought up with with no religion uh, as Uh an atheist. Um, And I would always, always under the assumption that when you die, that's it, you die. Anyone that believes otherwise are believing in fairy tales. Yeah. But the anxiety and the depression started me questioning that because the thought of never existing again for eternity was a terrifying thought. I thought, well, I wonder if there is more to it. I need to uh-huh. really look into this. And to me, uh-huh. you know, the question of death, the only one guaranteed experience we're all going to have, it's very important to understand it, to, in my mind, uh-huh. which is why, I, I, was, which is why yeah. I started looking into it. And it started off with um, casually looking at near-death experiences and different religions and out-of-body experiences, astral projection, all that sort of thing fascinated me. Uh-huh. Uh, at that point, it was very kind of a flight of fancy, these things you hear about, but you, no one with with half a mind would believe it uh-huh. um, but then when you start looking at it and you see the data that exists you start to question is there some validity to it and then of course uh-huh. you get publications like this which outline hundreds or uh, well over a hundred yeah that include verified perception that's harmless yet but yeah um, that's when you have to start looking because verified perception is entering the realm of, uh-huh. of se- severe credibility in this kind of field yeah, I would say so. Yes. Mm. Yeah. The time. So the timing issue um, with the near-death experience. What would uh-huh. your What would your opinion be on that kind of thing? Um, do we know, for example, at periods when we can measure the brain, saying cardiac arrest, the argument that there's no evidence to suggest that these experiences are taking place as the brain is offline, but instead while the brain is either rebooting or initially shutting down. Well, there are a few cases in which uh, the uh, resuscitation process had not even begun yet after cardiac arrest I mean so when someone is uh, uh, seeing something which happened at a precise moment namely between the, the moments uh, he, he or she got a cardiac arrest and the moment that the resuscitation was started they can be quite sure I'm not a medical expert, of course, I'm layman, but you can be quite sure, I suppose, that um, this was not accompanied by the necessary cortical brain activity. Meaning that if someone uh, perceives an event that happened at that particular time, that should count, in my view, as evidence for uh, consciousness during cardiac arrest, not after or before, but during cardiac arrest itself. Mm. Have you ever had the chance to speak to neurologists, neuroscientists, who would perhaps be better equipped to say whether during that period, if given the fact that it it did occur during this period, that there Uh should be no experience? Yes, yes. I have been, for example, in... uh, touch with uh, Dr. Sam Sampania, the very same uh, Sampania you were talking about. And one of the cases in our book is that of uh, Tom Aufterheide, or Aufterheide, I don't know how to pronounce it in English, because his name is uh, German. Um, and yeah, he was working as an intern, if I'm not mistaken, 
uh, when some somebody uh, was brought in who had had a cardiac arrest and he was given the, the task of overseeing the whole process of resuscitation and he felt overwhelmed by that task because he was very inexperienced and um, now the the patient after having been resuscitated and after having uh, regained uh, consciousness he uh, met this doctor of Heide one day and he told him among other things uh, about his agitation when the, the patient was brought in and he was still uh, yeah, suffering from a cardiac arrest the, supposing that there was no brain activity at the time and he claimed that he had uh, telepathically read this doctor's mind and the feelings and thoughts he had had about being overwhelmed by this task as an inexperienced uh, medical uh, assistant or whatever his uh, precise qualification was and yeah that that is something that happened at that moment before uh, the resuscitation began so that is a good a good example i would say do you know roughly how long um after the heart stopped functioning that that experience took place uh, i would have to look, look that up but uh, it was minutes after that, so not, not seconds. More, more than long enough to yeah. warrant brain shutdown, yeah. Or, um, and of course, many would say that. Well, we know that during cardiac arrest, the the um, the outer lobes of the brain cease registering activity, but we can't mm -hmm. measure below, deep within the brain, the minute activity that takes place, which could account for. Have you seen the experiment with the? Um, I'm not 100% familiar with it with the rats. To experience brain surges at the time of death. Yeah, that, let me first say that I don't agree with the, those experiments uh, ethically. No, yeah. neither do I. So, but um, yeah, all this is in our book, in fact, in the discussion uh, chapter, chapter 10, if I'm not mistaken. And yeah, the main thing that we want to stress is that people having NDEs um, uh, describe them as being very lucid in consciousness and they describe um, their consciousness as consisting of complex human thought, human emotions, human feelings, etc. They don't talk about uh, yeah, consciousness at a very low, almost vegetative state which one would expect if it were based on a, a subcortical activity in the brain. So it is generally assumed within neurology that for human consciousness, and especially a very active lucid consciousness, one would need um, sufficient cortical processing. So if the cortical processing shuts down, we shouldn't expect the kind of consciousness that is being reported 
and especially of a heightened level. Exactly. Mm. Uh, yeah, even complex perceptions shouldn't be expected at that uh, phase. Mm. So that is a very strong argument, I would say, that subcortical activity can't explain the kind of consciousness that is being reported in NDEs mm. during cardiac arrest. I mean. And of course you have other cases not involving cardiac arrest, but involving um, periods in which the brain is just as potentially just as severely compromised, like the case of the very controversial case of Dr. Eben Alexander, someone who I'm going to have the privilege of talking to soon. Oh, really? Um, which I very much appreciate. I'm sure he's a very busy man, but he's going to take the time. Bless him. Um, Send him my greetings, by the way. I, I will. I certainly will. Um, now, he's, of course, a very controversial case because he's a Harvard-trained neurosurgeon. Mm-hmm. And we all know of the um, the Esquire article by Luke Dittrich and yeah. the follow-up by Robert Mays. Correct. And with the case of Dr. Ivan Alexander, with severe bacterial meningitis, mm-hmm. um, I'm not a neurosurgeon or a medical doctor by any stretch of the imagination, mm-hmm. but at that stage, that's almost the same as having a brain that doesn't work at all i agree and yeah. so if we assume that the um the case is accurate with its description and isn't mm-hmm. a case of fraud or whatever which i think is incredibly unlikely um then that is also a very strong case especially from someone who you'd have thought would know very much how the brain works and how it is theorized to produce consciousness well i do agree and uh, the case actually is in our book, in chapter 11, talking about uh, skeptics and uh, their response to uh, to the evidence. And it was written by Rudolf uh, Smith, one of the co-authors. And, yeah, he concludes that uh, the case as such um, really is strong and uh, withstands all the, the criticisms. Uh, from the skeptic community, I mean. The only problem, uh, and that's the reason why we haven't included it as one of the cases within the collection, is that there is no clear third party who could confirm his uh, vertical uh, perceptions. And then I'm talking about uh, the perception of his uh, deceased... uh, to uh, unknown um, sister. So if there had been a very good um, witness for that, then we would have included it in, mm. in the other uh, chapters as well. But I do agree that uh, yeah in general from yeah from common sense if you uh, approach it uh, with common sense then, it should be uh, seen as a strong case. Mm. And of course, as with any case, we must take every possibility into into account before coming to any any conclusion. Yeah, that's a general rule, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, one of the the, the sceptical um, individuals who is formidable in this field that you've mentioned in the book is Gerald Verley. 
mm-hmm. primarily against the Pam Reynolds case and the Dentures case. Yes, I know. Do you, do you feel that um, any suggestions brought about by um, Gerald Verley and others provide any kind of possible explanation to any case? Uh, well, they might provide an explanation for, uh, so to speak, uh, cases which are not real near-death experiences. Uh, say, hallucinatory experiences which remind one of near-death experiences, but really aren't NDEs. But not for the, yeah, the core of the evidence, uh, meaning what we have presented in our book. It can't be uh, an explanation for those. And um, to be sure, the original Dutch version is called, uh, in English, um, what a dying brain can't do. So we're concentrating on all those phenomena, all those elements or components of uh, the experience that can't be explained in any materialistic way, neither uh, through psychology nor through neurology or a combination of both, and yeah, which require another kind of exp- uh, explanation, another kind of hypothesis. And I suppose the problem is, is as soon as you try to incorporate some supernatural metaphysical explanation, um, it's met with huge revulsion by the majority community. But in my view, you know, something that we'd something that we describe as supernatural is simply natural that hasn't yet been discovered. So I don't yeah. see how a- a- adding to the paradigm takes anything away from it no but but the problem still is that uh, they are starting from the materialistic paradigm and it simply doesn't fit in so uh, in their view it would mean uh, doing away with science uh, doing away with everything we have uh, collected so far even doing away with reason for some of them. So that explains their huge resistance and even ridicule. Mm. It is very unfortunate because yeah, it is very uh, interesting, but it is also very important to take these uh, phenomena seriously. Uh, not only for science, but also for our view of ourselves and our worldview in general. So it really is a pity. It is, and it's a shame when you look at the some of the um, some of the reactions from people. Uh, again, we use Dr. Evan Alexander and the, mm-hmm. the 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 accusations that were put on him because he released a book and only because he's a Harvard's trained neurosurgeon, so people had to take it seriously. And the backlash that he received was phenomenal. And it's the same with many people that have these experiences. Yes. Um, What do you think? I always find interesting in this, if you're aware of it, um, the James Randi Foundation. Mm -hmm. With the million dollar challenge that's never been um, 
uh, 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 one effectively. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's your opinion on, on that whole that whole challenge? Because there are huge proponents of it all over the place, and you'll see it's often used as an argument against any form of supernatural experience. Well, uh, Randy is uh, almost generally um, considered a real debunker, a real materialistic, uh, preconceived, narrow-minded or closed-minded, I should say, skeptic, a real materialist. And I think his results can't be taken very seriously for that reason. Uh, I don't know if you'd know the case of Natasha Demkina, a um, Russian uh, uh, female um, healer and uh, psychic. And she was uh, studied by a team of skeptics uh, who all uh, worked in the spirit of uh, James Randi. Yeah, she was also studied by real parapsychologists, including Mary Rose Barrington. Maybe you've heard of her. She recently uh, passed away. And um, Miss Barrington wrote an article exposing the methods and the, the, the way of reasoning of the skeptical team and showed that, yeah, they simply refused to take the evidence seriously. They um, changed the standards during the the experiments um, only to be able to um, conclude that it was all nonsense, that she was not gifted, that she didn't have any special gifts, and that it was just some kind of illusion or even a psychiatric disease that she thought that she really could do more than average. Mm -hmm. And it devastated uh, the girl because she had believed that the skeptical team was really honest and had a very real interest in uh, in her uh, powers, but it turned out not to be the case. They simply, yeah, you know, wanted to debunk her, wanted to debunk her claims, and that's uh, for me. That is a very uh, strong and um, even a, a normal example of the way they treat the paranormal. Is typical for their uh, attitude. Mm. It's a shame because there is a way. There's a way to be skeptical and a way to not be skeptical. And I'd say the way to not be skeptical is to be skeptical and condescending to anybody that correct believes yeah. what they believe. You know, for whatever reason they believe it, it's not your business to tell them they're stupid or childish or whatever. Correct. Yeah, I agree. But I suppose to be skeptical of one's opinion. In order to be properly skeptical, one must be skeptical of one's own opinion, also. Yeah, that's what lacking, what's lacking mm. most of the time. Yeah. Mm. Uh, have you ever heard of the Zetetic scholar, which uh, was led by 
I'm not mistaken, Marcello Truzzi or something. Um, let me just look it up. Yeah, he was a uh, skeptic who started off as a, uh, yeah, just an average skeptic, but he found out that he couldn't live with the way other skeptics were treating uh, anomalous uh, subjects. And he founded his own skeptical organization, which was more in the uh, in line with uh, the historical uh, meaning of the word skeptical, which also means open-minded and not dogmatic, not closed-minded. So uh, there is a whole movement, if I'm not mistaken, of people who want to be skeptical in the original sense, but don't want to be debunkers. Hmm. That's very interesting because Good. it means that yeah, that's what we need. That you want to be critical, but of things you want to be, to have your criticism and to be reasonable about things, but you don't want to exclude, preclude certain phenomena just because they don't uh, match your worldview. Hmm. That's right, and I think it, a lot of that's just part of human nature because you see it on both sides of the fence. The fundamental atheists skeptics but also the mm. fundamentally religious believers yes i agree yeah. who can be equally nasty to people that go against them whether to say whether yeah. atheist or fundamentally christian or muslim or whatever and i think it, it, it seems to be yeah. the fear of losing or having to alter one's worldview in face of evidence that contradicts it and it's, it seems almost a defense mechanism to be incredibly condescending and unnecessarily harsh with language, which I think is a shame because, yeah. as, as you say, one should follow evidence wherever it leads. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. But it is a common uh, human weakness to, um, yeah, to be intolerant towards uh, other people's uh, views whenever they don't. Um, match yours and I, I've been guilty of that myself so has everybody else but it's been able yeah. to recognise it and try to neutralise that yeah. which isn't easy <laughs> certainly especially, no, when, especially course, when you've yeah. grown up in such a culture as ours mm -hmm. yeah yeah can imagine yeah so have, having grown up in what did you say was it a Catholic background yes do you um, ever ever wonder if you become subject to anything like confirmation bias with evidence um, because that's something I wonder about myself whether I'm presented with evidence and I try to look at it open-mindedly but because um, I approach it with the fear of dying and the desire for there to be uh -huh. something I wonder if I'm ever guilty which I'm sure I am of, of not consciously but subconsciously trying to twist evidence in, in favour. Uh, of course, as I try to do that as little as possible and to catch any sign of it, but do you ever find that um, that may be, play a role? It is a, a real risk. I agree that it can play a, a role, especially if you aren't aware of it. But I'm quite... Um, 
experienced in these uh, fields and I've seen many cases I've even talked to many people to many experience or uh, people with memories of past lives so yeah I also have met people whom I didn't trust I mean that I didn't take uh, their stories at face value I've even uh, published an article in 1991 about a fantasy case of reincarnation memories of a Dutch engineer who believed that uh, he had been on the Titanic in his uh, previous life, that he had died as an infant. You might want to look that up. It's in the Journal of the Society of Psycho Research, 1991. And yeah, I had started my investigation uh, starting from the conviction that reincarnation is real of course that's the general working hypothesis and I yeah I must say that I at first I did believe his story I did believe that he was uh, telling the truth and that he had good reasons to interpret his experience the way he did but only later on I found out that there were strange inaccuracies within his uh, account and I even uh, could uh, yeah I could uh, confirm that some of the stuff that he was saying was simply incorrect through uh, the royal archives etc so in that case, I, I yeah was led by the evidence to the conclusion that his case was not uh, valuable in, a, in the, the parapsychological sense. So for me, that proves that I'm open-minded enough, mm. <laughs> and that I can be proven wrong when I start uh, with the idea that it will probably be a yeah a real case of something anomalous or paranormal and it seems to be a missed point um, to people that are more against this kind of idea and this kind of research that researchers don't just take stories put them together and present them as evidence that each case mm-hmm. is checked it's yeah. the same with the near-death experience, the veridical out-of-body experience, the reincarnation mm-hmm. memories, um, mediumship. Each case is very closely, I'm sure, I'm assuming. But That's probably, the idea, at least, yeah. Because that, how else would you find the cases that are... And it's, it's not like we're trying to build a huge volume of cases, regardless of whether they're true or not, we don't care. We're no. only presenting... Yeah. Yeah, very thoroughly checked cases. We, not meaning not me, <laughs> but the okay. film in, in general. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. Let's leave that to the to the journalists. They can uh, publish any case they like, whether it has been checked or not. But that is not uh, the task of the serious psychical researcher. So that's a uh, yeah, a real difference between the two uh, 
professions or the, the two projects, to the two uh, objectives. Mm. The journalist doesn't want to to find. In most cases, of course, there are uh, scientifically minded journalists. I'm not talking about those, but uh, an average journalist for a tabloid or something just want a real, uh, yeah, impressive story. Exactly. Whether yeah. it's uh, true or not. Mm. If it sells papers. Yeah, that that's is right. the main uh, goal. Mm. Mm. Uh, and that, that's why I'm often. I often take extra care when looking at cases from people that have written books because I'm mm -hmm. sure that they'd be inclined to, in many cases, in order to sell the book, they'd have to maybe not not add parts, but exaggerate for, for effect. And, you know, you, you exactly. appreciate yeah. that. That's, that's fair enough. But it's the data within that. It's whether it's true or not. And it's the same with the journalists that you, that you mentioned that you see everywhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you, you must question the validity of everything, but not dismiss it outright as all exaggerated and all fabricated. And of course, there, exactly, are, yeah. there are cases. Yeah. Um, I can't remember the name of the lad, the young boy who who wrote um, a book about going to heaven, which turned out to be completely fabricated. And of course, the people against his research jumped on that like wolves on meat. And it's, it's yeah. still quoted now. And one, I'd, I'd say, you know, in in every field of research like this, there will be fabrications. Yes, but very few in number compared with. You know, I wonder how many people are aware that you know um, num numbers of cases such as this exist. So I'm sure many people, when you think of the near death experience, will think of one or two fanciful sounding cases, but ignore the other hundred that That's include, problem, veri yeah. Yeah, that include veridical That's perception. something we have wanted to change by publishing this book. Yeah. Mm. I mean, ev everybody, when you ask about mm. near-death experiences, they'll jump to extremes. Um, Eben Alexander, yeah. um, Pam Reynolds, but nobody ever mentions... Um, pick one here. Uh, that's that's not that's not a case. <laughs> that's the end. Uh, Thomas Tom Sawyer uh, with Robert no, Mays. No one's ever yeah. heard of him, but he no. had a very valid veridical out of out of body experience, or I'm assuming because it's in that yes. case, in that area. Yeah. Um, and add that case to the many millions of people who haven't reported it, fear of being ridiculed or uh -huh. because they just never got round to it. And you've got some very strong statistical evidence. I'd have suggested. Um, the statistical in the sense that it can't be just uh, mere coincidence or something. Mm. Yeah. Oh, sorry, just the sheer volume of, of accounts yeah. that say similar things. Yes. Mm. Yeah, it depends on how you want to use the word statistical, of course. If you use it in a strict mathematical sense, then it doesn't apply. But if you just mean uh, probabilistic or something like that, then you're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I use it in the most primitive of forms. I'm not a statistician. I'm not a philosopher. Okay. I'm a very lay person who just is interested in this sort of stuff. Yes. So don't don't take me out of context <laughs> if anybody's listening. No, but be, be, uh, because in Dutch, one wouldn't use the word statistical or the Dutch equivalent in that uh, specific sense. That's why I'm uh, mm. stressing it that 
we don't claim that we have found statistical evidence in the sense that we have done some very thorough statistical analysis and mathematical analysis of the evidence because we haven't. Mm -hmm. It wasn't our goal. We wanted to, to uh, find evidence that would count as strong by the standards uh, we have used. Mm -hmm. Especially the standard of there being a third party who confirms the story. So what would you say to those that oppose this kind of research as non-scientific because it involves only anecdotal subjective interpretations of experience as opposed to empirical data and therefore have little weight in the scientific community? Well, I would just quote you. <laughs> you have already uh, yeah, expressed it uh, very nicely, namely that... Um, this isn't anecdotal evidence in the, the everyday sense of stories that, ha that aren't confirmed by anyone, anyone's uh, testimony, uh, anyone's external testimony, I mean, that haven't been confirmed by any third parties. In that sense, we can't call them anecdotes, because for the usual anecdote, we only have the, yeah, the person telling the anecdote as a source and not some, not anyone else. Mm. So that, that is, uh, that would be my reply. Mm. We can't dismiss them as mere anecdotes because they aren't. No, because they have third party verification of. Exactly. So now if you, you yeah. take, sorry, if you take, uh, um, what I would call a scientistic view, meaning that only experimental uh, evidence or the experimental method would count as a scientific method, then you would have this dichotomy between, on the one hand, experimental results, and uh, on the other hand, everything else, which would be called uh, nothing more than anecdotes. But if you reject um, that approach, which we have done, then uh, there are many methods, um, and not just two, and many shades, so to speak. And some methods may just be more suitable for certain subjects than other methods. So if experimentation isn't possible in one uh, area, it doesn't mean that everything that is left is just anecdotal evidence. Mm. There are many gradations, uh, many shades, and it's not just all or nothing. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. So from your many years of research into this kind of area, everything considered paranormal, what, what would you say is your current stance on the nature of, of consciousness? Or say you um, started as a, as a Catholic, became more atheistic during your university days. So where would you say your beliefs slash conclusions are currently regarding consciousness, afterlife, um, extended mind, etc.? Well, um, 
I would say it is a combination of, on the one hand, uh, the, um, say, orthodox view of uh, biological evolution, and on the other hand, more spiritualistic view of life. So I don't reject the theory of evolution as formulated by uh, Charles Darwin. I'm not a creationist like the fundamentalist uh, Christians in, uh, in the United States or something. But I do believe that there is, as uh, Dr. Ian Simpson would have called it, a personal evolution interacting with biological evolution, uh, meaning that there is a personal or individual a psyche that evolves during biological lives, biological lifetimes, survives death, of course, because otherwise it wouldn't be possible, and it may end up in a non-physical uh, realm. So that's that's basically my yeah my main uh, belief system when we're talking about these subjects. And that comes from your research into um, reincarnation, near-death experiences. Yes. Any yeah. other areas you've gone into? Well, I've also studied a few uh, cases of telepathy, etc. And uh, a major interest of mine is also uh, animal uh, cognition, which for me also shows that uh, there's a continuity in a psychological sense between animals and uh, people or non-human animals and human animals and I don't uh, conclude from that that we are just animals in the materialistic sense but rather the other way around that animals are just like us namely spirits in the material world yeah, I would conclude something similar. I would conclude that we are animals who um, are subject to and came about as a result of biological evolution, but mm -hmm. there is a, a part of us that, we've, as, that has, has as of yet been undiscovered that maybe goes beyond um, biology, uh, biology that we currently understand. I don't think that brain creates consciousness as, as mm -hmm. is popularly um, considered true um, yeah i think the brain uh, i don't know <laughs> but i think it, it f filters or restricts consciousness through mm -hmm. uh, through the evolved human form and we perceive the world through the senses that the human being has evolved to perceive through but that essence and mind and memory i don't mm -hmm. think it's all brain-based and you, you, it's when you start looking at people like Stuart Hameroff and mm -hmm. various quantum that people call woo-woo, which I hate that term, beyond belief. Yeah. Um, so that, that's kind of where I am. So I think we're kind of similar in, in our viewpoints. Yeah, that seems to be the case. Yeah. Mm. So I must be doing something right. <laughs> <laughs> May I ask what your uh, 
um, scholarly uh, qualifications are like? What about have, mm -hmm. have you uh, done any studies at the university or nope. are planning I'll, to I'll... do so? No, I'm I'm <laughs> by profession. I am well by profession. I'm still I'm still a student. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm training to be a cognitive behavioural therapist. Okay, um, with therapist. A, a, yeah. a home university course. I I can't do universities or things like that because of my anxiety. Oh, really? It does it, it it affects me physically and it makes me feel really ill when I'm around mm -hmm. a lot of people in a certain. Mm -hmm. It's, it's a pain. I'm getting there, but I, I wouldn't face it yet. But I'm doing a home course on that. I'm also working on looking at the stock market and things like that. So nothing really to do with this philosophy or science. No, or, no, no, no. But I don't think you need qualifications to have an interest. No, no, no. Or something I agree. To I'm into. Just, mm. just being curious. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. Yeah. So, yeah, cognitive behavioral therapist, that's what I plan to do. Okay. So very worthy, uh, noble subject i would say yeah. i'd hope so i've been through many therapists myself for my anxiety and mm. depression and uh, i found mm. it not very useful so i'm trying to <laughs> I, I hope to offer it from experience i was given therapists you know 25 just out of university everything they learned out of a textbook you could tell mm -hmm. and I, I want to offer more of an experiential kind of help yeah the best therapy the best that. the best therapists are the people that have been there i think have been uh, through the same process of uh, depression, mm. anxiety, whatever. Because mm. yeah. you you develop a sense of empathy, and that's what's missing yeah. in a lot of people. Mm. Yeah. Okay, well, thanks for coming. I appreciate your time. Okay. We finally got everything to work, so uh, it was all worth it in the end. Let's hope it has been recorded. Yeah, let, let's, <laughs> let's very much hope that. <laughs>